Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews with your host, Aaron Martell. Hello there, I'm Aaron Martell, and welcome to Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews, a podcast where I talk about and review a rock album of my choice. Today I'm flying solo, no co-pilots, but if you're listening and you're interested in coming on the show to review an album with me, I'm always on the lookout for co-pilots to host a podcast with me. There are a few ways to get in touch with me, which I'll go over at the end of the show. So on this week's episode, I'm going to review Motley Crue's 1983 album, Shout at the Devil. I first discovered Motley Crue when I was in high school around 1984, when a friend of mine told me about them and said that they were a lot like Kiss. Kiss was, and probably still is, my favorite band, so I decided to check out the crew. This was the 80s, so MTV ruled the music universe, and it was the video for Too Young to Fall in Love where I first heard the music and saw the band. I took to the music right away, as I was really starting to get into what would later be called hair metal or glam metal. It was basically hard rock music that had some melodic sensibilities played by bands who dressed up elaborately in glitzy, showy, feminine clothes and lots and lots of spandex. And they were very image conscious. In the 80s, all sorts of different bands were labeled metal. You could go to a record store and find bands like ACDC, Led Zeppelin, Alice Cooper, and Metallica all lumped together in the heavy metal section. Today, metal music has so many branches and categories, it's ridiculous. Motley Crue played simple, basic, yet often catchy hard rock, and their image at this point in their career was a leather, bikers-from-hell look. They did wear makeup too, but not covering their whole faces like Kiss had in the 70s. Actually, before I knew any of the band members' names, I saw Vince Neil, the only blonde one, and I couldn't tell if he was male or female. I recognized that Motley Crue was a theatrical band, And they did remind me of Kiss in some aspects. From that video, I was interested enough to try out the album, and soon I got the cassette tape of this record, and I was on my way to becoming a huge Motley Crue fan. Now I'll give you some basic facts about this album, brought to you by Wikipedia. Wikipedia, look ma, no paper! Shout at the Devil is the second studio album by American heavy metal band Motley Crue, released on September 26, 1983 on Elektra Records. It was produced by Tom Worman and recorded from April to July 1983 at Cherokee Studios, Hollywood, California. It reached number 17 on the Billboard 200 chart and is certified quadruple platinum by the RIAA. Next, I'll give you the band's lineup card. We've got Vince Neil, lead vocals, Mick Mars, electric and acoustic guitars and backing vocals, Nikki Six, bass guitar, bass pedals and backing vocals, and Tommy Lee, drums and backing vocals. Now let's go into a track-by-track analysis of the album. Leading off is In the Beginning, written by Nikki Six and Jeff Workman. This is a short, atmospheric piece that serves as an intro to the next track, 
There's wind noises and keyboard ambience that tries to come across as ominous or scary, while a heavily processed voice recites a poem about an apocalyptic or end-of-the-world scenario. The words were written by Nikki Six, but were spoken by Jeff Workman, an engineer for the album who also wrote the music for this, such as it is. On the album, the vocal was credited to Alistair Fiend, a murderous monster mascot that was pretty fucking cool. Kind of similar to Iron Maiden's Eddie, but the band didn't use him very long as Motley Crue frequently changed their look and style from album to album. This track isn't essential or anything, but it works as an introduction to the album and the next song. And that next song is the title track, Shout at the Devil, written by Nikki Six. A simple guitar riff and drum beat is heard, and then the shout, shout, shout chorus hook comes in before the bass joins the fun and the song takes off. It's a mid-tempo thumper that plows along with mixed biting guitar riffs and solo and Vince's high sleazy vocals as highlights. The chorus is catchy as hell and will have you pumping your fist if you gravitate toward this type of music. I read that the song was originally called Shout With The Devil, and if you interpret the lyrics in that context, they make sense, as Lucifer's influence over humanity is described. Nikki was apparently dabbling in the occult, and wanted to use the demonic imagery in the lyrics and in the band's image, which used skulls and pentagrams, and projected that the band worshipped the devil, gaining the crew early notoriety in the media. Fearing that the record company would have a problem marketing the band and the album with this image, however... Nikki changed their words to shout at the devil and said in interviews that the crew had no interest in Satan and that the lyrics mean to stand up and rebel against authority figures holding you down. No matter how you choose to interpret them, the lyrics are pretty evocative, and Vince delivers them so fast and screechy that I had a hard time understanding what the fuck he was saying anyway. I love this track, and it's an absolute Motley Crue classic. For some reason I cannot fathom, they re-recorded it for the 1997 album Generation Swine, adding some modern tweaks to it, and it's hideous. Stick with the original at all costs. The next track is Looks That Kill, written by Nikki Six. Mick Mars plays a badass riff, and the band brings a lot of energy to another one of their signature songs. The beat is driving, and the ascending riff in the pre-chorus is kick-ass. Now, I'm going to say it, Vince Neil is not a world-class singer. But especially in the early days of the crew, he brought an attitude and style to his vocals and mannerisms that perfectly suited the material and projected the wild, hedonistic image the band was going for. The lyrics basically tell you that the woman in question is in control and you, the would-be suitor, is completely at her mercy. The chorus is memorable and another one you can't help but shout along to. Mick's guitar solo is unflashy but loud and effective. I fucking love this song and it's another Motley Crue classic, one of their very best songs. The record is off to a great start. 
Moving on to the following track, we get Bastard, written by Nikki Six. Tommy's drum pattern fades in, and the song blasts off, a fast, chugging rocker. Mick's guitar on this record has a chainsaw-like tone he never really used again after this album, which is too bad because I think it's the best guitar tone he's ever had. Vince sings about a former manager of the crew, Alan Kaufman, who ran off of the band's advance money from Electra Records. Vince really sounds like he's pissed off as he considers that bastard dead. When I first heard this song, I loved to shout out the line, You're not gonna fuck with me! This track rips by fast at just under three minutes, and I think it kicks ass. We move on now to God Bless the Children of the Beast, written by Mick Mars. This mostly instrumental track serves as a musical interlude as well as an intro to the next track. Mick gently picks arpeggiated chords on acoustic guitars with harmonized electric guitar soloing over the top. The effect is quite haunting and there are some atmospheric keyboards underneath the track that swell when the voices sing the one line, God bless the children of the beast. Ooh, so creepy and scary from the satanic heavy metal band. Mostly inconsequential at best, but I dig it. That leads us into Helter Skelter, written by John Lennon and Paul McCartney. Motley Crue covers the Beatles. They certainly make it their own as they take the hardest rocking Beatles song and turn it into a hair metal showcase. As far as covers go, it's not their worst, as the crew are definitely hit and miss with their cover tunes in my opinion. But this doesn't knock my socks off either. The band obviously thought highly of it as they always play this sucker live. To my ears, they're not loose enough with it. It sounds too boxed in, too structured. The Beatles played this like it was going to fall apart any second, and I liked that uncertainty. And Vince Neil can't sift Paul McCartney's dirty socks as a vocalist. All that said, the crew do the best they can with it, and it's not completely awful. And considering the notoriety the song carries with it thanks to Charles Manson, thematically it fits on the record, though the lyrics really seem to be about an up-and-down relationship. I don't skip this track, but it's one of the lesser ones in my opinion. So let's flip our imaginary record over and drop the imaginary needle on Red Hot, written by Nikki Six, Mick Mars, and Vince Neil. Red Hot! 
Tommy Lee starts off with a roaring double bass drum beat, the fastest beat on the whole record. Of all the members of Motley Crue, Tommy seemed to get the most respect as a musician and drummer, and I feel he deserved it for the most part. I think he's great, and he really pounds the skins like a kick-ass rock drummer should. Back to the song. A long pick scrape from Mick leads to the main riff, and the song really gets going. The pace never lets up as Mick rocks hard all the way through a blistering solo, and Vince sings about... Um, I have no fucking idea what the song's about. I guess it's about being young and standing together through all of life's obstacles or some shit like that. Yeah, that sounds good. Regardless, this song tears it up and was always a live favorite. I fucking love it. Crank it up. The next track is Too Young to Fall in Love, written by Nikki Six. Tommy pounds out a simple drum beat, and then Mick comes in with a cool-as-fuck riff to launch the song, and Vince squawks out the lyrics about a relationship that's gone bad, and that maybe he needs to move on to find some other companionship. Mick plays another tough rockin' solo, and say what you will about Mick Mars. For this type of music, at this point in time, when he got hold of a good song, he did a damn good job. He wasn't a shredder, and he wasn't a bluesy player, but he was very capable of coming up with terrific hard rock riffs and solos. The pre-chorus and chorus sections are catchy, and I have always, always loved this song. The video is weird and doesn't really fit the song's theme. The four guys try to rescue a woman from the clutches of an Asian boss, complete with a superhero-style fight against ninjas and samurais. Made no fucking sense. But this is the song and video I discovered the band with, so it'll always have a special place in my heart. Later in their career, the crew dropped this from their set list, which bugged me, but I suppose late middle-aged guy singing I'm Too Young to Fall in Love would be kind of stupid, wouldn't it? Let's move on now to Knock 'em Dead Kid, written by Nikki Six. Mick begins with a riff that this time doesn't quite grab me like the others on this album, and the band bash through another mid-tempo rocker that doesn't have anything unique or interesting to bring to the table, in my opinion. The lyrics seem to be about gaining revenge on someone by beating the shit out of them or possibly even stabbing them with the line, The blade is red, kid. Vince yelps out the words with good energy, but overall this one seems to be lacking something. This is my least favorite track on the album, making it Aaron's Stinky Stinker. But truthfully, it's far from the worst song in the Motley Crue catalog. The penultimate track on the record is 10 Seconds to Love, written by Nikki Six and Vince Neil.
This track has a dirty, sleazy vibe, both in the music and especially the lyrics, which are strictly about sex. Actually, it could also refer to premature ejaculation, because if it only takes him 10 seconds to... you get the idea? Vince sings in his best scuzzy loverman voice, and has some sleazy spoken word passages toward the end of the song, which if you listen close, you can hear squishy noises that are supposedly authentic sex sounds. I don't know about all that, but I do know this is a long-standing live favorite the band played throughout their career. For me, this one isn't that great. Never been a huge fan of it, though I don't hate it. The riffs aren't as kick-ass, and the words are just, nah. I want to take a moment to talk about Nicky Six. As a lyricist and songwriter, he has talent, though he's probably not as talented as he thinks he is. And when inspired, he writes excellent hard rock tunes. But there are songs throughout the crew's entire catalog where I get the strong sense that he's being lazy, just mailing it in. And as a bassist, especially in these early days of the band's career, let me put it this way. I can play better bass than Nicky, and I totally suck. Smartly, his bass is mixed pretty low in these tracks, and that does minimize his rudimentary at best playing. To be fair, over time, he would improve his chops significantly, and his playing would become quite serviceable. But on this album, these last two tracks, though they're not awful, unfortunately do slow down the record for me. Now we've come to the final track, Danger, written by Nikki Six, Mick Mars, and Vince Neil. This is as close to a ballad as we get on this album, with quiet verses and a slowed-down tempo. It has a dark, menacing vibe to it, including background keyboards that enhance the tune's sense of dread. I interpret the lyrics as the viewpoint of a gang member who's seen some shit on the streets and is feeling life is spinning out of control, so you better watch out if you see him and the boys coming your way. Vince lays down a solid vocal performance and communicates the bitterness and fear the song is emphasizing. The rest of the band steps up and gives the track exactly what it needs without distracting from the vocals. Nobody is overplaying, and Mick has a couple of cool melodic guitar licks. As a closing track, it works really well, and I dig it. So that closes out the track-by-track analysis, and now I'll go into my final thoughts and album rating. For you new listeners, the album rating is a 0-5 to system, with 5 as a favorite album of mine, all the way down to a 0, which is a total piece of shit. In their heyday, I really fucking loved Motley Crue. They were the biggest band to emerge from the Los Angeles Sunset Strip metal explosion in the early 80s and became the poster boys for the glam metal genre, even if they hated that tag. They had larger-than-life personalities and were known for their crazy antics and wild partying that got them repeatedly in trouble with the law and endeared them to their fans. They were even able to achieve mainstream notoriety by dating Hollywood actresses and recording popular sex tapes. Their shows were bombastic and heavily theatrical, and as they grew in popularity and made more money, their shows used more and more special effects and pyrotechnics and became really spectacular. The bubble burst on the glam metal scene in the early 90s, and Motley Crue's wild ride came crashing to a stop, ending their first era when Vince Neil left the band. That's a very quick rundown of the band, but what about the music? Well, 
When you got a Motley Crue record, you were almost guaranteed to get a few killer hard rock metal songs and a lot of mediocre material to fill the album out. It was easy to tell which tracks the band put their time and effort into, and they were usually very good at picking the best tracks for singles. But Shout Out the Devil to me is the anomaly. It's the crew's best album, easily their most consistent, and there are no tracks on it I outright despise. The best songs are Motley Crue staples, and this was the album that sucked me in and made me a lifelong crew head. I'm giving this album a four and a half. If someone who had never heard of the band and was interested in exploring them asked me which album to start off with, it's this one, no contest. It's all downhill from here. I'd now like to give a shout out to another podcast I enjoy listening to. It's called Ironcast, and it's hosted by Luke Innes, Greg Barnes, and Mr. T from Germany. It's another music podcast where they do album reviews and crack jokes, and I find it really funny and entertaining. They mostly cover hard rock and metal, but they touch on other musical genres too. They don't lock themselves into one genre exclusively. They recently celebrated their 100th episode, so congratulations, guys. That's Ironcast. Dig it. And that's going to do it for this episode. You can find this podcast on iTunes, so if you're an Apple user and you like what you hear, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review of it there. If you take the time to do that, I'll read your review right here on the show. For you Android users, the podcast is available on Stitcher. You can leave comments and reviews there too, and I'll read your reviews on the show from there as well. If you'd like to contact me directly, I can be reached at RidiculousRockRecords at gmail.com and also on the Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews Facebook page, which is another place where you can review the show and there's a link to hear each podcast. You want to come on the podcast and talk about an album with me? Shoot me an email. We'll set it up. I'm always looking for co-pilots to host the show with me, and I would also welcome any requests or suggestions for albums to cover. Feel free to leave all of your feedback, comments, reviews, and or suggestions at any of those places I just described. I'd love to hear from you. And lastly, here at R4, we thank you so much for giving this podcast a listen, and a massive thank you if you like and support the show. Take care, and I'll catch you later. The ascending riff, you know the part that goes up. You know that part, that part. Yeah, that's the part I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that's kick ass. Yeah, I love that shit. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, well, fuck you, whatever, man. Like, oh fuck, I'm still recording. <laughs>